Welcome back to the Bible Study Tutor. I'm your host, Jessica Hutton, and today we're diving into John chapter 3. The chapter is theologically rich as it explores themes of spiritual rebirth, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and the embodiment of God's love and Christ's mission. It highlights the necessity of belief in Jesus as the Son of God and the source of eternal life, as well as the contrast between the true faith of those who embrace him and the unbelief of those who reject him. The encounter with Nicodemus sets the stage for further revelations and interactions with diverse individuals throughout the gospel, providing deeper insights into Jesus' divine nature and the transformative power of his grace. Now let's proceed with the reading of this chapter. The English Standard Version of John chapter 3 reads as follows. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you were witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Chapter 3 of the Gospel of John presents a powerful conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, a Pharisee and member of the Jewish ruling council. This encounter delves into profound spiritual truths, including the necessity of spiritual rebirth and the divine mission of Jesus to bring salvation to the world. The chapter begins with Nicodemus coming to Jesus under the cover of darkness, likely seeking privacy for his conversation with the esteemed teacher. He acknowledges Jesus as the teacher from God, recognizing the signs and wonders performed by him as evidence of God's presence. Jesus initiates this profound dialogue by stating, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. These words immediately captivate Nicodemus, leading him to inquire about the practicalities of being born again. Jesus, the master teacher, gently guides him through the concept of being born of water and spirit, explaining that this spiritual rebirth is a divine work of transcending physical birth and opening the way to eternal life. As Jesus explains the concept of being born of water and the spirit, we come to understand that this regeneration is not dependent on human effort, but is solely a divine work of God. It is a radical transformation that takes place in the innermost being of believers, paving the way for a new life in Christ Jesus. Jesus goes on to explain that this rebirth is facilitated by the work of the Holy Spirit. He compares it to the wind which blows where it pleases, and though we cannot see its origin or destination, we can observe its effects. Similarly, the Spirit's work is unseen, but brings about a radical change in the lives of those who receive him. The passage continues with Jesus referencing the symbolic image of the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness, an allusion to the salvation offered through faith in him. He draws upon the symbolic image of the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness to illustrate the redemptive power of faith in him. Like that serpent, Jesus too must be lifted up through his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, providing salvation and eternal life to all who believe in him. And just as the Israelites looked upon the serpent and were healed, so too those who look upon Jesus with faith find eternal life and salvation. As the conversation progresses, Jesus reveals the purpose of his mission, what many regard as the gospel message in a sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The author continues by sharing that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, not to condemn the world, but to save it through him. This statement emphasizes the divine mission of Jesus as the savior of humanity and the embodiment of God's love and grace. The chapter ends with John the Baptist's testimony affirming Jesus' identity as the son of God and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He acknowledges that Jesus must increase while he, John, must decrease, acknowledging Jesus' preeminence in God's plan of redemption. 
Though he was appointed by God to do a great work and had grown in prominence, John the Baptist demonstrated humility and grace by rejoicing in the decrease in his own prominence as the focus shifts to an increasing exaltation of Jesus Christ. Throughout this chapter, John skillfully weaves themes of divine love, redemption, and the significance of belief in Jesus as the central focal points. As we delve into these profound conversations, we gain a deeper appreciation of the transformative nature of spiritual renewal and the boundless grace of God offered to all who embrace his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. As we delve into chapter three, we must engage in the essential process of contextual understanding. Remember, we need to wrestle with the text to fully grasp its significance. The wrestle framework helps us lay a solid foundation for sound exegesis and hermeneutics, ensuring that we comprehend the historical, cultural, literary, and theological context of the passage. Now let's break down the context of John chapter 3 using the wrestle framework. W stands for writer's perspective and motivation. The Gospel of John was penned by Apostle John, one of Jesus' inner circle, and a significant eyewitness to his ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection. John's purpose in writing this gospel is explicitly stated in John 20, verses 30-31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Through a carefully selected series of signs, speeches, and symbolic actions, he aims to bolster the faith of believers and offer compelling evidence of Jesus' deity and redemptive mission. John's purpose shapes the narratives, theological themes, and language choices that constitute this book. Accordingly, chapter 3 expounds on the discussion about believing in Jesus. R. Religious and Political Climate Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. Thomas Constable describes him this way. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have had respect for the Jewish scriptures and would have been nationalistic politically. He would have stressed the careful observance of Israel's laws and the traditions of the elders. Obedience to these was the way of salvation for Pharisees. He continues, the Pharisees generally were antagonistic toward Jesus and Nicodemus apparently wanted to avoid unnecessary conflicts with his fellow Pharisees. Whenever else John referred to night in his gospel, the word has moral and spiritual connotations of darkness, and it probably does here as well. Nicodemus was in spiritual and intellectual darkness as well as natural darkness when he came to Jesus. Events. John 3 presents two significant events, the private meeting with Nicodemus and the ensuing dialogue and the reference to John the Baptist's testimony. These events hold profound theological implications and provide insight into Jesus' ministry and message. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus addresses the theme of spiritual rebirth, the transformative work of the Holy Spirit, and the necessity of faith in Jesus for salvation. The reference to the bronze serpent in the wilderness symbolizes Jesus' impending sacrifice and its role in redemption. The mention of John the Baptist serves as a reminder of his humility and his role in pointing people to Jesus. His decreasing prominence and Jesus' increasing significance signify the fulfillment of God's plan. S. Social factors. A significant event unfolds involving the disciples of John the Baptist expressing concern over the increasing popularity of Jesus and his ministry of baptism. They appear to be experiencing a sense of competition and jealousy, prompting them to urge John to take action. 
However, in response to this situation, John the Baptist demonstrates remarkable humility and a clear understanding of his role. Instead of yielding to personal ambitions or succumbing to envy, John seizes the opportunity to reiterate his mission and testify about Jesus. He affirms that his sole purpose is to point people to Jesus, the bridegroom, and that his work is now complete. John's attitude of selflessness is evident as he rejoices in Jesus' increasing prominence. He willingly steps aside, recognizing that it is his time to decrease so that Jesus can fully step into his divine mission. T. Theological Themes First and foremost, the chapter emphasizes the theme of salvation through Christ alone. Jesus' declaration about being born again underscores the necessity of spiritual rebirth, the gateway to transformation, and the ultimate purpose of faith for salvation. This foundational truth lays the groundwork for understanding the redemptive work of Christ and the significance of his impending sacrifice. The reference to the bronze serpent from Numbers 21 is a poignant foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrificial death. Through this imagery, we gain insight into the role of Jesus as the ultimate means of redemption for all who believe in him. His impending crucifixion offers salvation and healing, much like the bronze serpent in the wilderness provided physical healing to the Israelites. The chapter further explores the dichotomy of light and darkness, symbolizing the contrasting paths of those who embrace the truth and those who reject it. Jesus' unique relationship with God as the Son highlights his divine identity, affirming his deity, and reinforcing the theological foundation of the Christian faith. Moreover, the chapter delves into the themes of condemnation, judgment, and God's wrath. It addresses the reality of wickedness, darkness, and evil in the world, serving as a reminder of humanity's need for redemption. In this context, the concept of eternal life takes on profound significance as it represents the promise of everlasting communion with God for those who believe in Christ. Throughout the chapter, the work of the Holy Spirit is evident, underscoring the divine agency in the process of spiritual transformation. Obedience to God's will and the acknowledgement of his love further complement the theological landscape that is painted in this chapter. L. Language and Translation the author exhibits a deliberate and adept communication of theological themes in this chapter. John employs strategic phrases with layered meanings exemplified by lifted up to convey profound truths. By referencing the account of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness as recorded in Numbers 21, John skillfully foreshadows the manner of Jesus' eventual death. This calculated selection of words accentuates the redemptive essence of Jesus' impending sacrifice. Notably, Jesus does not overtly declare the specifics of his impending death or even explicitly mention it. Instead, he utilizes the metaphor of the serpent being lifted up to communicate the spiritual ramifications of his sacrificial act. The parallel is drawn between the people in Moses' time gazing upon the serpent and receiving healing, and the significance of believing in Jesus to attain eternal life reinforces the transformative potency of faith in him. Moreover, John skillfully weaves symbolism imagery throughout the narrative, accentuating the divine purpose underlying Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Each element of the account underscores the core theme of salvation through Christ and the transformative nature of spiritual rebirth. And the final E, exegesis and interpretation. 
By diligently applying our contextual understanding to John 3, we unlock transformative insights into Jesus' teachings and their impact on our lives. Embracing the theological themes presented, we gain a deeper appreciation for Jesus' divine identity, redemptive mission, and his central role in our faith. By leveraging the wrestle framework, we arrive at accurate exegesis and interpretation of the passage, thereby enabling us to apply its timely truths to our lives today. This profound dialogue with Nicodemus reveals the transformative power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, underscoring the fulfillment of this divine purpose and redemptive mission. So now it's time to dive into the observation phase of the inductive Bible study process. During this phase, we will read the passage carefully and note observations that stand out to us, such as key people, places, events, and words. Here's a hint. For key people, notice significant themes and descriptions mentioned by the author. For key places, notice how towns and their inhabitants are described. Key events include activities that shed light on the historical cultural context, such as legal or religious events, dialogues, and social interactions highlighted by the author. Lastly, highlight words that are hard to understand, repeated, or have unique usage. Also, consider phrases or idioms the author uses that may give you insight into the significance of the passage. Now let's return to John chapter 3. The English Standard Version of John chapter 3 reads as follows. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. 
John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you were witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Immerse yourself in the chapter for 10 minutes. First, jot down your observations and any questions that arise. Next, write a summary of your observations. Then, search for insights about those observations. Look within the passage first, then review cross-references and use external resources. Your goal is to get high-level insights about your observations and the questions you have about the text. You're not interpreting anything yet. So if you're watching the Bible Study Tutor on YouTube, you will see a timer on your screen and it will give you a list of observations to look for.
Here are some of the observations I made. The chapter begins with the word now, which suggests that the author is continuing his thought from chapter two. If so, John may be pointing out the fact that like others who seemingly believed in Jesus, Nicodemus only believed in Jesus superficially. The chapter begins by acknowledging Nicodemus's role and that he visited Jesus at night. It seems that Nicodemus was compelled to visit Jesus because he was impressed by this rabbi from God who performed great signs, but nothing in the text suggests that Nicodemus is a full-fledged believer. As such, Jesus provided an enigmatic response to Nicodemus' comment about no one being able to do signs unless God is with them. In verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Confused, Nicodemus asked how these things could be, and Jesus explained what we know of as regeneration. Now, key people. This chapter revolves around several pivotal characters, each playing a significant role in the unfolding narrative. Nicodemus, a prominent Pharisee and leader among the Jews, emerges as a key figure. His nighttime encounter with Jesus sparks a profound dialogue about spiritual rebirth and eternal life. Jesus, the central character of the chapter, is identified as the Son of God and refers to himself as the Son of Man. He introduces the transformative concept of being born again and emphasizes the necessity of belief in him to attain eternal life. Jesus' disciples also make an appearance, baptizing at Anon near Salim, highlighting their involvement in his ministry. Moses, a revered figure from Israel's history, is acknowledged in the chapter. His act of lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness to bring healing serves as a significant parallel to Jesus' forthcoming sacrifice and the redemptive power of faith in him. In the latter part of the chapter, John the Baptist plays a vital role. He testifies about Jesus once again, emphasizing the supremacy of Christ. John humbly acknowledges that his own influence must decrease to make way for the increasing exaltation of Jesus. These key individuals with their distinct role and interactions contribute to the chapter's rich tapestry, weaving together themes of faith, redemption, and the transformative impact of encountering Jesus. Their presence adds depth and significance to the unfolding narrative of John chapter 3. Key Places The chapter identifies the Judean countryside as the place where Jesus and his disciples went and remained. They baptized people there at Anon near Salim. The author reported that there was plenty of water there. And key events. John chapter 3 presents pivotal moments that hold great theological significance, shedding light on the core themes of salvation and spiritual renewal. The chapter opens with a clandestine nighttime meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus, a prominent Pharisee and leader among the Jews. During this encounter, Jesus imparts profound gospel truths to Nicodemus, introducing the concept of spiritual rebirth and emphasizing the necessity of faith in him for salvation. Another significant event revolves around Jesus' disciples engaging in baptisms at Anon near Salim, where John and his disciples also perform baptisms. The coexistence of these baptisms sparked tension among John's disciples, revealing hints of jealousy and concern regarding the rising popularity of Jesus' ministry in comparison to John's. Additionally, a dispute arises between John's disciples and an unnamed Jewish individual concerning purification practices. In response, John seizes the moment to clarify that his time of decrease had arrived, allowing Jesus to take center stage and highlighting the supreme role of Christ in God's divine plan. 
These key events in John chapter 3 not only drive the narrative forward, but also offer profound insights into the transformative power of faith, the nature of salvation, and the unfolding mission of Jesus Christ. They lay the foundation for a deeper exploration of the theological truths that form the bedrock of Christian faith. Keywords. Several keywords and phrases within the passage stood out to me. Among them are Pharisees, Jews, the reiterated phrase, truly, truly, born again, kingdom of God, born of water and the spirit, spirit, ascended, descended, son of man, which I expounded on in the Bible study of John 1, 35-51, eternal life, belief, condemn, judgment, wrath, and more. Today, I'm focused on the phrase born of water and spirit, as many believers by virtue of our conversion experiences assume that we know what it means to be born of water and spirit, yet this phrase confounds many scholars. Therefore, it's important to delve into this phrase to accurately discern what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus that unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I will discuss that during our interpretive phase of the inductive Bible study process. Now let's begin the interpretation phase of our inductive Bible study of John chapter 3. First, I want you to review your observations, consider the things that I shared with you, and conduct research so that you can properly interpret the passage. Here's a hint. Ask yourself the following questions. What did the author intend to communicate in this passage? How would the audience receive and interpret the message? What theological themes are addressed in the reading? And what does the passage reveal about the nature of God? Spend the next 10 minutes reflecting on the significance of your observations. Write a summary of your interpretation, then use cross-references and external sources to conduct in-depth research about those observations. Your goal is to gain in-depth insights about your observations and any questions that you have about the text so that you can interpret it correctly. However, it is best if you write your interpretation first to compare it with reliable, scholarly, biblical, and theologically sound resources. If you're watching the Bible Study Tutor on YouTube, you will see a timer on the screen along with resources that you can use to help you with the interpretation phase of the Bible study. Podcast listeners are encouraged to pause the episode and work on it when you can so that you can also do this interpretation exercise. So your interpretation process begins now.
is my interpretation of the text regarding authorial intent when we delve into the gospel of john a significant insight comes to light the core purpose driving the evangelist writing as we move forward i will continue to reiterate the point because it's essential to stress john's purpose for writing the book as he clearly laid out in john 20 30 to 31. in these verses he set forth his goal to help readers firmly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now the Greek term you used here goes beyond the original audience encompassing all future readers. So even though the gospel wasn't written directly to us, its message holds timeless relevance that spans generations. Once we grasp John's primary aim for writing the book, understanding the significance of each chapter and its connection to the broader theological purpose becomes easier. Chapter 3 is at the heart of John's purpose, revolving around a central theme, faith that transcends mere words and leads to a deep internal transformation. John unequivocally communicates that seeing and entering the kingdom of God hinges on being born again, a transformation brought about only by the Spirit of God. The author emphasizes that this rebirth comes through unwavering belief in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. He then goes on to explain the reason behind this need for spiritual rebirth. In this chapter, John underscores the prevailing human condition, a state of condemnation and wrath which God's love, grace, and mercy counteract. God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place, taking upon himself our death and the wrath of God that we deserve. 
This act of substitution enables our salvation, redemption, and reconciliation with God. Through rebirth, the weight of condemnation and wrath is lifted, ushering in eternal life in Christ. Conversely, those who reject belief in Christ Jesus are already under condemnation, living with the lingering wrath of God. Chapter 3 beautifully aligns with John's intent, echoing the call to transformative faith and divine salvation. Its significance resounds across time, making it a crucial cornerstone of understanding the gospel of John's theological message. And speaking of theological, this is what I interpret about the theological themes and the nature of God as revealed in this chapter. This passage reveals the profundity of God's love, mercy, and grace, and alludes to the depth of our depravity. Chapter 3 reminds me of how God described himself in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. The English Standard Version reads as follows. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That begs the question, who is the guilty? John 3, 17 through 20 says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Yet there is good news. The good news that is revealed in one powerful verse. The verse that gives us insight into how God's great love manifests. John 3.16 reads, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. D.A. Carson explains that just as the new birth and the attaining of eternal life find their foundation in the son's lifting up, this very pinnacle of the son's mission is rooted in the boundless love of God. Although the focal point of this paragraph revolves around the son's mission and its subsequent outcomes, John initiates by underscoring that the son's mission itself emanated from God's love. The intricate Greek construction employed in the phrase so love that he gave his one and only son, hautos plus ho, say, plus the indicative rather the infinitive, accentuates the sheer intensity of his love and firmly asserts the realization of the intended outcome. Additionally, the inclusion of his one and only son, similarly elaborated upon in notes concerning 114, underscores the profound magnitude of this divine gift. It becomes apparent that the father's act of giving encompasses his supreme offering, his unparalleled and cherished son, a sentiment mirrored in passages such as Romans 8.32. God's love is intense. Culture continually tries to reframe his love into some postmodern, sentimental, watered-down practice of accepting and embracing people according to their interpretation of what is good. But our interpretation of what's good is flawed and perverted by our fallen human nature. Romans 3.23-26 reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Thus, an accurate description of God's love involves acknowledging that his love emanates from his own character. It is not dependent on the loveliness of the love external to himself. Accordingly, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That which we think is good is regarded as sinful from God's perspective unless we place our trust in Jesus Christ alone. D.A. Carson put it this way, Christians were not born Christians. They were by nature objects of wrath. Despite this desperate status, they were made alive with Christ because of God's great love for them, this God who is rich in mercy. Examples of this paired stance of God would be multiplied. Apart from God's love for the world, the very world that stands under his wrath, no one would be saved. Where there is a redeemed community, it stands in a different and richer relationship of love with God than does the world. But that distinction cannot legitimately be made to call and question the love of God for a world under his judgment. Because John 3.16 is sandwiched between verses 14, 15, and 17, the fact that God gave his one and only son is tied both to the son's incarnation and to his death. That is the immediate result of the love of God for the world, the mission of the Son. His ultimate purpose is the salvation of those in the world who believe in him. Whoever believes in him experiences new birth, has eternal life, is saved. The alternative is to perish, to lose one's life, to be doomed to destruction. There is no third option. Now regarding audience reception. John's original audience would likely have grasped the significance of Jesus' allusion to Moses raising the serpent in the wilderness. Just as the Israelites were afflicted by snake bites, had to gaze upon the bronze serpent to be spared from death, the parallel would have been evident. To be saved from spiritual death, they needed to fix their gaze upon Jesus. This concept, though, may have been novel to some. The prevailing understanding among the Jews was that they were the chosen people of God, potentially leading them to disregard the possibility of God's love extending to the Gentiles. Thus, the notion of God's love embracing the entire world could have challenged their existing perceptions. Additionally, John the Baptist's message urging attention to Jesus would have resonated with his audience. As John's prominence waned, he redirected their focus to Jesus, emphasizing that the time had come for Jesus to ascend in importance. This shift was pivotal as John had prepared the way for Jesus' ministry and his call for redirection was a pivotal moment for his listeners. This multifaceted layer of John's teaching in this context offers a glimpse into the interwoven themes of salvation, divine inclusivity, and the transitioning of prominence that characterize John's narrative and resonate with the broader theological underpinnings of the gospel. I like D.A. Carson's explanation of how the original audience would have interpreted this message. It appears then that the passage makes good sense within the historical framework set out for us, for example, as a lesson for Nicodemus within the context of the ministry of Jesus. But we must also know how John expected his readers to understand it. If his targeted readers were Hellenistic Jews and Jewish proselytes who had been exposed to Christianity and whom John was trying to evangelize, then his primary message for them is clear. No matter how good their Jewish credentials, they too must be born again if they are to see and enter the kingdom of God. 
When John wrote this, Christian baptism had been practiced for several decades, which was of course not the case when Jesus spoke with Nicodemus. If, and it is quite uncertain if, the, the evangelist expected his readers to detect some secondary allusion to Christian baptism in verse 5, the thrust of the passage treats such an allusion quite distantly. What is emphasized is the need for radical transformation, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, anticipating the outpouring of the Spirit, and not a particular rite. If baptism is associated in the reader's minds with entrance into the Christian faith, then they are being told in the strongest terms that it is the new birth itself that is essential, not the rite. So Carson is saying that irrespective of the original audience's strong Jewish affiliations, John urged them to undergo spiritual rebirth in order to gain access to the kingdom of God. Carson also discussed the potential, albeit uncertain, association with Christian baptism in verse 5. However, he stresses that the passage's core thrust goes beyond a mere ritual and delves into the need for radical transformation. This resonates with Old Testament prophecies envisioning the outpouring of the Spirit. Carson concludes that the essence of the passage emphasizes the imperative of the new birth itself rather than a particular ceremonial practice like baptism. Application involves the process of drawing parallels from the passage in order to derive principles and precepts that can be applied to our lives. The application phase requires careful consideration <laughs> of interpretive insights. <laughs> Get down. <laughs> oh, don't don't do that. Get down. <laughs> Tipsy. Get down, girl. <laughs> of interpretive insights gleaned from the passage and alignment with the overarching message of the Bible. Application may involve making pragmatic changes, seeking personal growth, and otherwise aligning our lifestyles with the values and principles conveyed in the text. During the application phase, it is essential to take into account the broader biblical context to ensure our application remains consistent with the overall message and teachings of the Bible. By anchoring our application in this larger framework, we can maintain coherence and alignment with the timeless wisdom and guidance provided by the scripture. Now we'll explore how today's reading can translate into our modern context. Get down. So the timer is set for 10 minutes. I've provided you with prompts to help you think about how to apply what you've learned to your life. So your 10 minutes begins now.
Here are some elements for practical life application that I got from the text. Live your truth has become the tagline for the culture. And with that, many people have adopted philosophies and ideologies that fuel the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Where Jesus has declared that he is the way, truth, and life, and that no one gets to the Father except through him, the people have taken a stand to go their own way, live their truth, and do life on their terms. Moreover, they've bought that, or, or at least would have you convinced that they believed as much, the clever deception that many roads lead to God. But that's not the truth. There is only one way. Jesus is that way. No one is good. Only God is good. If everyone lives their truth, then truth doesn't exist, and there can be no standard for living. And if we allow our lust to guide our lives, we will perish. According to Kenneth Gangle, in this chapter, the verb perish speaks of eternal death in contrast to eternal life. It represents the opposite of preservation since death is the opposite of life. Those who refuse God's gift are alienated from him without hope for both the present and the future. A person need not sin blatantly to perish. One may simply fail to act positively in receiving God's gift. When applied to Judas in John 17, 12, we learned that the one who perished was the one of the son of perdition, or in the NIV, the one doomed to destruction, a play on the word apoleo. J. Ramsey Michael adds, while God's love is universal, it guarantees eternal life, not for the whole world indiscriminately, but for everyone who believes in Christ Jesus, God's only begotten son. Just as eternal life is more than simply the prolongation of physical life, so being lost is more than just physical death. It is, as the next verse will show, eternal condemnation and separation from God. There are no lost sheep in the Gospel of John. For Jesus, sheep will never be lost, and those who are lost are not his sheep. Now recall I began the study of chapter 1. I said that John had a twofold purpose for writing this book. The first was evangelistic as he exhorts people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The second was edification as he urges believers to continue believing in Christ and persevere in the faith. If you are not born again, this chapter presents you with a solution to the problem of being separated from God. I encourage you to study the chapter more thoroughly, continue studying the Gospel of John with me, and read Galatians and Romans to gain more insight into the grave depravity of humankind and the powerful intervention that God provided through the sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Gerald Bray wrote an article called Jesus' Accomplishment of Salvation. It says this, Jesus accomplished our salvation by becoming a man, by suffering and dying for us, and by raising us to a new life in and with him. His work of salvation began in eternity when he purposed with his Father to accomplish our redemption. In his incarnation, he brought the promise of salvation into the world. The substance of his earthly ministry was to proclaim the salvation, both by his teaching and by his actions, including his many miracles. Those who recognized what he was doing and who worshipped him as Savior were told they were saved, even before his death and resurrection, because they believed the promise that he brought with him. The key moment in Jesus' earthly life was his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified. There he repeated in human form what he had already done in heaven. He submitted to his Father's will and accepted the suffering and death which that entailed. 
After his death, Jesus descended to hell, the place of disobedient spirits and the home of Satan. By this act, he invaded the kingdom of darkness and rebellion against God, destroying his power and setting those who had been captured by it free. He then returned to earth in a resurrected body, showed himself to his disciples and prepared them for his ascension into heaven. Once in heaven, he presented his sacrifice to the Father and sat down at the Father's right hand where he serves as an advocate for believers. The theological heart of Christ's saving work is his death on the cross where he made atonement for our sins, the payment that reconciles us to the Father and puts us at one with him. On the cross, Jesus took our sins on himself and paid the price for them by his death so that those who believe in him and trust in his work on their behalf are saved through him rather by anything we may achieve or perform. Therefore, the call to action for unsaved people is to confess, believe in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 through 13 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The call to action for current believers is to mature and persevere in the faith and share the gospel with the world. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus declared, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The bottom line is this, if you are unregenerated, cry out to Jesus for salvation. And if you are saved, ask the Holy Spirit to help you persevere in the faith until you finish the race. Now, on the next episode, we will continue our study of the Gospel of John by exploring chapter 4. This chapter features the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, uncovering deep insights into Jesus' identity and his mission to offer living water to all who believe in him. Join us as we delve into this captivating encounter and unravel its profound theological truths. And also, thank you for joining me in today's episode of the Bible Study Tutor. I hope that you found this study of chapter 3 enlightening and transformative. So don't forget to like and share this video with others. And remember to subscribe to the Bible Study Tutor so that YouTube knows that people are interested and will share it. Because at the end of the day, this is the kind of Bible study teaching we need. I am thoroughly convinced of it. It's too much junk out there. And even the stuff that's decent is not enriching. That's my conviction. So please subscribe to the channel. And the only people who are going to see me say this are the only people, the uh, eight of y'all who watch this. <laughs> so until next time, live well, take care and God bless.